This is Tom Hanks. Do you know an undiscovered musician who deserves a break? Well, we have an idea for them. NPR Music is holding a tiny desk contest to find one great unsigned musician to play the iconic Tiny Desk concert series and tour the United States with NPR Music. All you have to do is shoot a video of your musical act playing an original song behind a desk and submit it by January 29th. Learn more at npr.org slash tiny desk contest. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here to catch you up on President Obama's final press conference in office and a very busy day of Trump nominee hearings in the Senate. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Asma Khalid, political reporter. And I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And Susan, you had to rush over here from Capitol Hill where you were covering... The Tom Price hearing, yeah. But before we get to all of that, a reminder to come see us live at the Warner Theater in Washington, D.C. on Friday, February 10th. We're doing a live show that we're calling President Trump, What's Next? Tickets are at nprpresents.org. And we're just two days from President-elect Donald Trump taking the oath of office and being just plain old President Donald Trump. Uh, Listen to yesterday's episode for some discussion of Trump's lowest in a generation favorability ratings and a brief rundown of more eye-raising comments he made in some newspaper interviews over the weekend. As for today, it was the final press conference by Barack Obama as president. Here's what the president said to reporters after he stepped up to the lectern in the White House briefing room. Even when you complained about my long answers, I just want you to know that the only reason they were long was because you asked six-part questions. Um, But I have enjoyed working with all of you. Uh, That does not, of course, mean that I've enjoyed every story that you have filed, uh, but that's the point of this relationship. You're not supposed to be syncophants. You're supposed to be skeptics. You're supposed to ask me tough questions. You're not supposed to be complimentary, uh, but you're supposed to cast a critical eye on folks who hold enormous power and make sure that we are accountable to the people who sent us here. And you have done that. And you've uh, done it, for the most part, uh, in ways that uh, I could appreciate for fairness, even if I didn't always agree with your conclusions. Um, And having you in this building uh, has made this place work better. Was he just, like, subtweeting there, guys? <laughs> yes, of course he was. I mean, there is, an, there is a very real uh, conversation between the White House Correspondents Association, as you well know, Tam, and yeah. the Trump administration and what the contours and of the relationship between the White House press corps and the next administration is going to be. And one of the things that is under consideration and debate is even moving the White House press corps from the White House grounds and potentially moving them into a building adjacent from the White House. But the White House Correspondents Association is in very, you know, I've spoken to, I'm friends with some of the members of the White House Correspondents Association, and they are in, you know, near daily constant conversations with the Trump administration over what this relationship is going to look like. It was so interesting to hear President Obama being so pleasant and optimistic about not only like his relationship with the press, or as he perceived his relationship to be, but also in the potential like duties and, and worthiness of what the press is doing. Because, I mean, I don't 
feel like the Obama administration has historically always been the most transparent or forthcoming yeah, administration. It's like pot, meat, kettle. And also, we should say, we, where Obama is there commending the press, his administration has also really cracked down on the press, more so than past presidents did as well. So Obama is not free of criticism here and how his administration dealt with the press and how they dealt with whistleblowers and people leaking information to outlets like the New York Times. So he is not free from criticism in this regard. Yeah, I mean, it, one could argue that the things that the Trump administration is talking about doing, the things that the Trump administration could do to restrict press access are made possible by, are building on things that the Obama administration did. And what the Obama administration did was building on things that the press didn't like about what the Bush administration did. And actually, the Bush administration was building on the Clinton administration. It's this thing where they are in the power position. And you criticize your predecessor for doing those things until it becomes your job. And then you embrace the things that protect the person in that office. So he's not unusual there. We should say incoming White House Chief of Staff Reince Priebus has openly discussed this, including the possibility of moving the White House press corps out of the, the traditional White House press room. But President-elect Donald Trump apparently told Fox and Friends this morning that, that he doesn't want to do that and that's not going to happen. Of course, he does tend to change his mind on these things, but that's where it stands right now. Um, and, you know, the Obama subtweet or whatever we want to call it continued into the question asking part of the press conference as well. Uh, his first question came from the White House Correspondents Association president. Then he took a question from Fox News, from Univision, a reporter from Al Arabia and a, an LGBT newspaper. And then April Ryan, an African-American radio host. I mean, to me, it was this question, though, Tam, of it really being for President Obama, this moment where he was kind of trying to go back to the message that I felt President Obama tried to portray in his 2008 campaign. And I say that in part because, I mean, I distinctly remember one of the first interviews President Obama gave after being inaugurated was to Al Arabiya TV. And this was kind of a mind-boggling choice. But if, if you look at all these people, it was, you know, President Obama trying to portray himself as being the president for all. That was, in theory, the way he campaigned in 2008. Um, a lot of folks would say it's not necessarily the way he's governed. And it may also be that he was hoping to get questions on the topics that these reporters would be most likely interested in asking. But the first question he got from Jeff Mason of Reuters, who's the head of the White House Correspondents Association, was about his choice of commuting the sentence of Chelsea Manning. She's the army private who leaked a ton of data and secret government documents to WikiLeaks back in 2010. The president said she'd served a long sentence already, seven years, which is actually the longest ever in a case involving a leak of government documents to the public. Here he is. You know, I feel very comfortable that justice has been served and that a message has still been sent that it, uh, when it comes to our national security, that wherever possible, we need folks who may have legitimate concerns about the actions of government or their superiors or the agencies in which they work, uh, that they try to work through the established channels and uh, avail themselves of the whistleblower protections that uh, have been put in place. Which is to say, please, 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 please don't take this as a sign that you shouldn't that you should go leaking all our stuff all over the place. 
Yeah. And to no surprise, this decision was met with immediate and fierce criticism from Republicans on Capitol Hill, particularly people like Armed Services Chairman Senator John McCain, House Speaker Paul Ryan. And their argument is that if you commute a sentence for a crime of leaking national security documents, does it incentivize people in the future to do the same thing? That if the if the punishment is not severe, that it will not be a sufficient enough deterrent to encourage similar behavior in the future. And here's the the statement that Ryan put out. He says, President Obama now leaves in place a dangerous precedent that those who compromise our national security won't be held accountable for their crimes. So, you know, also in this press conference, President Obama was asked about some of the conversations that he's had with the president-elect, Donald Trump. And he, he said he wouldn't really get into the details of that, those conversations, but he did reiterate that they've been cordial. And he said that he's told and he's emphasized to Donald Trump the importance of having a good team around him. Uh, he says that means not just people who agree with you all the time. This is a job of such magnitude that you can't do it by yourself. You are enormously reliant on a team, uh, your cabinet, your, your senior White House staff, all the way to fairly junior folks uh, in their 20s and 30s, but who are executing on significant responsibilities. And so uh, how you put a team together to make sure that uh, they're getting you the best information and they are teeing up the options from which you will ultimately make decisions. That's probably uh, uh, the most useful advice, uh, the most constructive advice that I've been able to give him. He also talked in this press conference about uh, what he plans to do after he's done being president. So after Friday afternoon and, you know, probably after he goes to Palm Springs with his family, enjoys the warm weather, except for the fact that there's going to be a torrential downpour rainstorm that never happens in California, but is happening for him. But he said that, generally speaking, he was going to be quiet, that, you know, like, just like other past presidents, not meddling in day-to-day politics. But he said that there were certain things that he wouldn't be shy about speaking up about if they were to happen. Um, In his words, things that threaten our core values, things like explicit obstacles to voting, systematic discrimination being ratified in some way, um, institutional efforts to suppress dissent. Uh, And also he talked about if the Trump administration were to try to round up dreamers, the, Mm -hmm. the young immigrants who his administration gave some protection to, that he would also speak up about that. What what else stood out? I do think it's interesting at the top of it where the president sort of, he acknowledged H.W. Uh, Bush, who is ailing right now. And he also said in his comments that he has really relied on his friendship over the years. We have been in touch with the Bush family today after hearing about President George H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush being admitted to the hospital this morning. Uh, they have not only dedicated their lives to this country. Uh, They have been a constant source of friendship and support uh, and good counsel for Michelle and me over the years. But in Uh, terms of how the camaraderie of living presidents and how they have all served each other and by all historical accounts have been uh, counsels and friends and have helped each other through these terms, and now how Obama is going to deal with Trump, what the what the post-presidency Obama-Trump relationship is going to be fascinating. Yeah. And if he is to weigh in and criticize, 
the administration, that would be really interesting. As you know, George W. Bush has been, I think, almost across Very the board silent. silent. But vice, former Vice President Dick Cheney has not been. He has been a constant and vocal critic of President Obama, particularly on national security. So there is certainly a precedent for recent administrations to criticize, but generally not from the principal. I don't think Joe Biden's going to play that role this time no, around, so, although I you never know. Right. I found that so interesting because maybe it was also sort of a surprise to me. I didn't realize that Bush, the senior, had had that type of relationship with President Obama, partly because he's just such an elderly statesman and you don't kind of see him in the public eye. It's and a very small club. And not only the Obama being part of that club, but Bill Clinton being part of that club. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just it's a really interesting dynamic. And Trump is very inexperienced in the political realm. I mean, he's going to need a lot of help and a lot of advice. And I think these past presidents have said they will be there to serve him. But what form and shape that takes is just like one of many amazingly fascinating things to watch coming into the Trump administration. Asma, what else stands out to you? The other things that were interesting to me were some of the questions that popped up about race. Um, You know, it is undoubtedly Historic. I mean, President Obama, we all talk about this, that when he was first elected, people thought so much about this possible post-racial era. Uh, folks are, are less, you know, sort of enthusiastic about talking in that way now. But there was a question that the president was asked specifically about whether or not he sees the possibility of there being another black president. I think we're going to see people of merit rise up from every race, faith corner of this country, because that's America's strength. And the way he responded to that question, I thought, was so insightful in understanding the eternal optimism, the quote unquote audacity of hope that the president has. If, in fact, we continue to keep opportunity open to everybody, then yeah, we're going to have a woman president, we're going to have a Latino president, we'll have a a Jewish president, a Hindu president. Who knows who who we're going to have? I suspect we'll have a whole bunch of mixed up presents at some point that nobody really knows what to call. Uh, and, and that's fine. You hear the, the one sort of dimension of President Obama is where he has this eternal hope. And the other side of this is I think he's, he's somewhat of a pragmatist. And he talked about how there still are very deep-seated racial issues in the country. And specifically, he said uh, he was worried about equality and barriers to voting. In fact, explicitly, he said that all these allegations about voter fraud are what he deemed fake news. I, I hope that people pay a lot of attention to making sure that everybody has a chance to vote. Make it easier, not harder. This whole notion of election uh, or, or voting fraud, this, this is something that has constantly been disproved. This, this, this is fake news. The notion that there are a whole bunch of people out there who are going out there and are not eligible to vote and want to vote. We have the opposite problem. We have a whole bunch of people who are eligible to vote who don't vote. Yeah, I mean, and it's worth pointing out that, as the president says, I mean, this is uh, a story that's been looked at again and again and again and has constantly been proven to be not true, the idea that there is massive voter fraud. So the final question went to Christy Parsons of the Chicago Tribune. and One of the old G's. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, she's been there since, what, since Springfield, Illinois? She covered them for local Illinois papers. Yeah. So, I mean, there was a certain symmetry to the whole thing in calling on her. And, And she asked him, it was sort of a good gotcha question. She was trying to get him to be reflective. So, of course... 
She asked about his family <laughs> and, and she asked about how Obama and his wife, Michelle, have talked to their daughters about the election, um, given the stakes that the first lady had, had laid out before the election, casting Donald Trump as disrespectful and even threatening to the rights of women and LGBT Americans. Um, he spoke for about five minutes about his daughters, uh, <laughs> said that, um, one, they're great. Kids are always great. Uh, and that they were, in fact, disappointed with the election results. And then the president said this. But what we've also tried to teach them is resilience. And we've tried to teach them hope. And that the only thing that is the end of the world is the end of the world. Uh, and so you get knocked down, you get up, brush yourself off, and you get back to work. And that tended to be their attitude. Then he sort of transitioned from talking about his daughters to talking about the country at large. And we'll play the last three minutes or so of what he said here. They also don't get cynical about it. They, they have not assumed because their side didn't win or because um, some of the, the values that they care about don't seem as if they were vindicated that automatically America uh, has somehow rejected them or rejected their values. Or I, I don't think they feel that way. I, I, I think they uh, have, in part through osmosis, in part through dinner time conversations, appreciated the fact that this is a big, complicated country and democracy is messy and it doesn't always work exactly the way you might want. It doesn't guarantee certain outcomes. Um, but if, you, if you're engaged and you're involved, then... Uh, there are a lot more good people and bad in this country. And uh, there, there's a core decency to this country. And that, that, that they got to be a part of lifting that up. And I expect they will be. And in that sense, they are representative of this generation that makes me really optimistic. I, uh, I, I've been asked, I, I had, I've had some off-the-record conversations with some journalists uh, where they said, okay, you seem like you're okay, but really, really, what are you thinking? And uh, I've said, no, I, <laughs> what I'm saying really is what I think. I, I, I believe in this country. I believe in the American people. Uh, I, I believe that uh, people are more good than bad. Um, I believe tragic things happen. I think there's evil in the world. But I think that at the end of the day, if we work hard and if we're true to those things in us that feel true and feel right, that the world gets a little better each time. That's what this presidency has tried to be about. Um, and I see that in the young people I've worked with. I couldn't be prouder of them. And so. Uh, this is not just a matter of no drama Obama. This is, this is what I really believe. It is true that behind closed doors I curse more than I do publicly. <laughs> and sometimes I get mad and frustrated like everybody else does. But at my core, I think we're going to be okay. I think that that is like a great message to go out on from a president leaving office like to the country, like we're going to be okay. And that is like... 
Obama out. It was a very good a reassuring message, especially at a time of like incredible angst and division over the incoming president. And I think that there is sometimes a hysteria in sort of our headline writing or things being crazier than ever and all this kind of take on things. We're going to be OK. I'm okay I mean, with that's that. That's who Obama is. Like, I found this entire press conference and the way that he was talking about the next administration to be so much of a return to like Obama 1.0. The 2008 version <laughs> of what we heard from President Obama, because, you know, he was explicitly asked about the number of congressional leaders who said that they don't intend on attending the inauguration. He refused to badmouth them, but also flatly said, you know, I will be there. Michelle will be there. And he said it is going to be warmer than it was for his first inauguration. Fact check. True. <laughs> I do think, too, when he was talking about his daughters, that one thing that I think both President Obama and Vice President Joe Biden have been really good examples of over their eight years in office is just fatherhood Mm -hmm. and how committed they were both to just being fathers and talking about being fathers and that role in their lives. And a lot of that came through with Biden in the death of his son, Mm Beau, and and the conversations about Biden is how much even in the course of his political life, he kept his family at the forefront. And Obama has, by all appearances, done the same. And on a national level, that's a good example to set, that they they were paragons of fatherhood. And that's a good thing for the country. And he said that what he's planning to do in his immediate post presidency is spend as much of this precious time as he has with his daughters, who are getting grown up and with his wife, who uh, they will mark their 25th wedding anniversary this year. Okay, there were also a bunch of notable hearings today in the Senate on Donald Trump's picks for the top jobs in his administration. These hearings took place concurrently, all of them starting at 10 a.m. So it was like the super uber duper split screen. Um, Let's talk first about Tom Price. Sue, you have been monitoring that hearing. He's Trump's pick for uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services. This was sort of not his well this was not the official hearing it was sort of like the like a courtesy, courtesy hearing, hearing is how i've been describing what it what the heck is a courtesy <laughs> hearing is that like a courtesy runner so in the senate the health and human services is such a vast government agency and it shares jurisdiction with a lot of committees one being the health committee that he appeared before today but the committee that has actual jurisdiction that gets to vote on the nomination is the senate finance committee and they're going to have that hearing next week and that's the committee that's actually going to vote it out and send it to the floor today was just a courtesy hearing for members of the health committee to sort of take a first bite of the apple at Price and ask him a lot of questions. And And bite they did. Yes. And Price, you know, Democrats have taken aim at a lot of uh, Trump's nominees. I would say right now, Price is probably at the top of that list for for Democratic criticism, particularly because of his past views on healthcare in this country, particularly his support of things like privatizing Medicare. And he has been uh, a, a consistent and deep critic of Obamacare since its inception. And we should say he is a medical doctor, a member of the House of Representatives. Uh, and at the hearing, he defended the Republican plan and, and Trump administration plan, incoming Trump administration plan to both repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. One of the important things that we need to, to convey to the American people is that, that nobody, we're, nobody's interested in pulling the rug out from under anybody. Uh, we believe that it's absolutely imperative that individuals that have health coverage be able to keep health coverage and, and move, hopefully, uh, to greater choices and opportunities for them to gain the kind of coverage that they want for themselves and for their family. So uh, I, I think there's been a lot of talk about about uh, individuals losing health coverage. That is not our goal, nor is it our desire, nor is it our plan. 
So the fact that he said that no one was going to lose coverage was significant, although this echoes things that Donald Trump has said, as has Paul Ryan and Senate Health Committee Chairman Lamar Alexander. We, of course, do have no idea what the repeal plan specifically will look like. And the debate here about losing coverage is whether the federal government really has a philosophical obligation to make sure you have coverage. And so the individual mandate tells people that they have to buy health insurance. What Republicans are saying is that you will have access to health care. If you want to buy health care, you can buy it, but the government's not going to force you to do it. And that's going to, that is a small, it sounds small, but it is a huge, it's the whole ball game, you know? But that yeah, seems to be out of way. sync with what Donald Trump has been saying in recent interviews. But Donald Trump also, uh, in uh, I believe it was an interview with Axios, which is a new publication, where he kind of walked back his comments, where he said, talked about coverage for all and said they may uh, defer to states on how they cover people and specifically cited Medicaid block grants, which is a old, it's a longstanding idea and one that's very controversial. Got it. So it sounds like they are basically ensuring the idea of some of the sort of like lucrative things that were in the Affordable Care Act, right? The likable things. Maintaining yeah. insurance, say, on your parents' insurance up till the age of 26 and pre-existing conditions. Exactly. Okay. They don't necessarily, Chris Murphy, who's a Democratic senator from Connecticut, had a line where he said, essentially Republicans are saying they want to do all the things that Obamacare does. They just want to do it their way. Hmm. Which is... a pretty easy way to distill it. And and the individual mandate's at the heart of that. And then it's also how do you do this and not blow up the deficit, which is a huge part of the challenge. Um, We should also say that Democrats really honed in in this hearing on uh, recent reports about Tom Price and potential conflicts he has over uh, financial investments. And that the Wall Street Journal first reported on this in December, and that in the past four years, stock trades have been made on his behalf upwards of $300,000. Now, he has said, and he reiterated again today in his testimony, that he did not make these trades, that these were done on his behalf. By his broker. By his broker. And also, if you have a mutual fund or retirement account, a lot of times stocks are bought and sold on your behalf and you're not informed of every individual trade. He's also said that he will divest himself of all of his medical investments. Um, but within de- 90 days. Within 90 days. And this is not this wasn't good enough for Democrats. A lot a lot of Senate Democrats want more time to vet these uh, purchases. They're probably not going to get that. And on the other side, you know, Price was overwhelmingly supported by Republicans in the hearing today. Uh, he was praised as being one of the most qualified nominees to ever be put forward for HHS secretary. There was not a word of criticism from Republicans in the hearing today. He's got a lot of support. He's a very good friend of House Speaker Paul Ryan. I think it would take a lot to derail Tom Price's HHS secretary. Okay, moving right along, somewhere else in the greater Senate complex, over at the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, Scott Pruitt was getting his hearing. He's Trump's pick to head the EPA. Yesterday, we talked about his close ties to big oil companies as Oklahoma attorney general. Let's hear a key moment with Pruitt and Senator Ed Markey, Democrat of Massachusetts. This morning, NOAA, NASA, has declared 2016 the hottest year in the 137-year-old record that has been kept. Donald Trump has called global warming a hoax caused by the Chinese. Do you agree that global warming is a hoax? I do not, Senator. So Donald Trump is wrong. I do not believe that climate change is a hoax. Okay, that's important for the president to hear. <laughs> so this is this is part of the uh, age-old, week-long tradition of 
every Democrat trying to put space between the president-elect and his nominees for everything. Although I also think on the climate change question, every nominee, to the best of my knowledge, that this question has been put to has shared the same comment, that climate change is not a hoax. I believe Rex Tillerson was asked it in his Secretary of State hearing. Ryan Zinke was asked it during his hearing for Interior Secretary. And they all said something along those same lines. So there is at least agreement among Trump's nominees on the issue. The Pruitt did later say it is the ability to measure the extent of that impact and what to do that is subject to continued debate and dialogue. So, Sue, I suspect you're going to be a broken record here. But um, what are his chances? You know, Pruitt is a pretty mainstream Republican. And the fact that, you know, being a conservative is not a good enough reason to down a nomination. Democrats, uh, he is another one that I think Democrats really wanted to go after, particularly on the issues of climate change and environmental regulations. Pruitt has made no bones about the fact that he wants to get rid of certain environmental regulations. And, and he's is, not a fan of the EPA no, that he'll be leading. And and there is a there is a lot of upset in a lot of industries that EPA regulations are stifling the economy and making it harder for a number of industries. He has never made, he has never denied any of this. This is his record. This is what he's done his whole career. He has been an avid and public foe of the EPA. He also did say that he does not think it's inconsistent to be uh, pro, I don't want to say pro oil, that you you can want, you can support the energy industry and also want clean air and water. I mean, he says he does not think that those things are inconsistent. So, so I just have a quick question. Because the Republicans control the Senate, and I feel like I keep hearing from you about the contentious nature that the Democrats uh, have towards some of these nominees. I mean, is anybody really up for debate? I mean, to, to a real degree? The only person that has really had some scrutiny to, so far is Tillerson, Rex Tillerson, who was the nominee for Secretary of State. But even that has waned in recent days. The thing is, in the Senate, now that it just, all of these nominations just need a simple majority, they have, and Republicans have 52 votes. So the only thing that really matters is Republicans coming against, mm-hmm. out against nominees. And I don't believe we have a single Republican senator who has come out on the record against a single nominee. And because the rules of the Senate have changed, the rules for picking your nominees have changed. And Trump has been able to pick all of these people who are the perfect dream of a conservative president and and conservatives. There's also a question, too, for the Trump team that, you know, do you stand by your men? And there was a story today, the New York Times reported that Congressman Mick Mulvaney, he's a South Carolina Republican, uh, that he in the in the course of this vetting process, it was disclosed that he owes fifteen thousand dollars in back taxes, that he had had a nanny, that he did not pay the proper payroll taxes when they employed her roughly between 2000 and 2004. And he's up for Office of Management and Budget director. Yes. And so, uh, you know, this is the kind of thing that in the past has derailed nominees, partly because the president-elect has said, you know, this isn't great politics for me. I'm trying to start clean. But in a statement, the transition team said that the president believes that Mulvaney's the right guy for the job and he stands by him. And if the president-elect doesn't waver on that, I don't think it's the Senate's likely to reject who the president wants. We also had hearings today for Nikki Haley, Trump's pick for U.N. representative, and Wilbur Ross, his pick for Commerce Secretary. It did not appear that either of those picks will have trouble getting confirmed either. But let's talk about one of President Trump's nominees who did have a tough confirmation hearing. It was yesterday. It started at 5 p.m., kind of a weird time to start a hearing. Uh, Betsy DeVos for Education Secretary. At times, she seemed unprepared. Um, She seemed not to know about a federal law protecting students with disabilities, for instance, in this exchange with Senator Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire. 
the Individual with Disabilities and Education Act. That's a federal civil rights law. So do you stand by your statement a few minutes ago that it should be up to the states whether to follow it? The law must be followed, federal law must be followed where federal dollars are in, in play. So were you unaware when I just asked you about the IDEA that it was a federal law? I may have confused it. And she had this exchange with Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. And, of course, uh, the Sandy Hook school shooting happened in Connecticut. Um, One final question. Do you think that guns have any place in or around schools? Uh, I think that's best left to locales and states to decide. If if the underlying question is... um, You You can't say definitively today that guns shouldn't be in schools? Well, I I will refer back to uh, Senator Enzi and the school that he was talking about in Wapiti, Wyoming. I think probably there, I I would imagine that there's probably a gun in the school to protect from potential grizzlies. And that is how you go viral. (laughs) (laughs) There have been some bear memes, I think. I did notice today before. Did you never have police officers in your schools with guns? No. I we had a I grew up in Indiana. I thought it was very like normal to have a police officer with a gun. Do they have grizzly bears in Indiana? No, we don't have those. <laughs> okay, so um, is Betsy DeVos a, a noted bear hunter? <laughs> she is a noted philanthropist who is married to the son of the founder of Amway, and she is a Michigan resident who has spent much of her life on behalf and advocating for charter schools. So that has been her main issue and part of why she was nominated for the post. She did at her hearing on several issues show a real lack of understanding on the scope of issues affecting the education secretary. There was also uh, an exchange with Minnesota Democratic Senator Al Franken in which he asked her a question, which I think to most people, including myself, quite frankly, that seemed very wonkish where he asked her about measuring students' proficiency versus growth uh, which I I yeah. admit I don't know understand I wouldn't understand that question either I if it was in asked a few of me. Years I'll understand it very well, but <laughs> but apparently if you if you work and advocate in education circles, this is like asking about like batting averages in baseball. It's like one of those topics that's you people should know. And she did not. She wasn't very well versed on the issue, and so that was an issue. Uh, the the Hessen exchange about Individuals with Disabilities Act was a thing that was a cringeworthy moment for her a bit. She did not overperform. She did not. And in people of in the scale of nominees. Who have done really well in their hearings and not done so well. She's probably at the lower end of that scale. But again, I haven't heard a single Republican come out against her. I haven't heard any criticism from the Trump team. So what does that get you? I think that if she is approved by the Senate, that she's probably going to have a very contentious relationship with Congress. But, you know. It's so interesting that this woman who will be essentially leading the Department of Education, which is largely um, an agency that monitors public education in the country, has no experience going to public schools herself. Or sending her children to public school. Just like, I mean, she has no experience with the actual process of what this institution entails, which is just kind of like a counterintuitive person you would think to recommend for the job. But as you were saying, Sue, I suppose that doesn't matter. Uh, And also worth saying, she is a very big Republican donor. Many of the people who will be voting on her nomination have received donations from her. And of course, uh, she was a fundraiser for Donald Trump's campaign. And she was. Right before I came over for the podcast, I looked at Facebook and she was trending on Facebook. But I don't think in that good way. I think in that grizzly bear way. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, the grizzly bears. 
Okay, well, in non-hearing news and in not happy news, um, Sue, as you said earlier, uh, former President George H.W. Bush is in the ICU with pneumonia. And um, his wife, Barbara Bush, is also in there um, for exhaustion and um, illness. Um, This comes a few days after he sent a note to Donald Trump explaining why he wouldn't be at the inauguration. And... um, Do we have that note? Um, So George Bush wrote on January 10th, Dear Donald, Barbara and I are so sorry we can't be there for your inauguration on January 20th. My doctor says if I sit outside in January, it likely will put me six feet under. Same for Barbara. (laughs) So I guess we're stuck in Texas. But we will be with you and the country in spirit. I want you to know that I wish you the very best as you begin this incredible journey of leading our great country. If I can ever be of help, please let me know. All the best. That's a class act. There is a tradition of presidents going to watch other presidents take the oath of office Mm -hmm. to celebrate this peaceful transfer of power. Um, And George H.W. Bush won't be there, but his son, George W. Bush, will be there. Mm -hmm. President Clinton will be there for the inauguration, along with his wife, Hillary Clinton. Um, That could be awkward. And of course, President Obama will be there. It it is uh, one of these American traditions that um, we hold up our politicians and our leaders hold up because in other countries it doesn't always work so smoothly that's true before we go the next time you'll hear us donald trump will be the 45th president of the united states guys what are we watching for from him his supporters you know if i'm going to be completely honest the thing i am most obsessed about right now with inauguration day is the weather one it's just a drag if it's raining and i also think it'll affect things like the crowd and who's going to show up and and then there will always things. be an asterisk yeah so i checked the weather today it was at 80% as of as oh, of wednesday so npr will be supplying us with ponchos i heard for those of us who will be in the outdoors and environment i ordered uh rain pants on amazon.com <laughs> prime one day shipping Ooh, so excellent. that i could get them in time <laughs> the other thing i'm just so curious to see and i guess we won't know until inauguration day is i keep hearing so many different conflicting reports right about how many people are expected what we hear from Donald Trump about the size of the crowds versus what we're sort of hearing rumblings about from other organizations and and part of me I mean I spent a long time covering demographics and data all year <laughs> I think one of my takeaways is to just be maybe a little bit more skeptical uh, until I actually see the results firsthand so I will be eager to sort of just see the scope and the size of everything on the inauguration and also who we may see come out as as protesters that day yeah, Donald Trump uh, today tweeted a picture. He had a, a white uh, legal size notepad and a Sharpie. Um, we couldn't see what it was written on those pages. Um, but his team says that he is working on this speech, that it is all him, uh, that uh, he wants to talk about his vision, that he's met with historians and that he's watched some other addresses, but that this will be unique to Donald Trump. Okay, that is a wrap on today. We'll be back with a post-inauguration episode Friday evening. Also, that day you can hear us live on your radio during NPR's special coverage of the inauguration. That starts at 10 a.m. You can hear NPR and reporters from stations across the country covering the speeches, protests, and reaction to it all. We'll also have a live fact check of Donald Trump's address running at NPR.org during the speech. And one more time, tickets to our DC live show are at nprpresents.org. And you can write us with your questions or comments at nprpolitics at npr.org. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. 
I'm Asma Khalid, political reporter. And I'm Susan Davis, and I cover Congress. And thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Podcast.